Good evening. It is good to be together to worship God. What beautiful singing. Uh, we're thankful for the opportunity to come together at the end of the Lord's Day and worship Him again. If you'd like to be open your Bibles, we're going to begin at Malachi the second chapter. The Bible that's in your pews, Malachi the second chapter, is probably on 843. 843. We are thankful to have the kings with us, and we appreciate you and the work that you do, and we continue to pray for you. We're thankful that Brennan Page and John Michael is back from a very successful mission trip with 14 souls baptized into Christ and 13 restored. What a great success. Uh, we're mindful and prayerful uh, as we began this service of the group that is going to Ukraine. We appreciate so much the congregation there. We've had a long history with the congregation there. And we pray for their continued success through the years they have done uh, really much better in the last few years as far as growing in their community. And we hope and we pray that our Mount Juliet team that will go will be a great encouragement and, and a shot in the arm to the work there. And let's continue to pray uh, that good things will come uh, from that work. Maybe you're thinking, I would like to do some mission work. Uh, it's already been mentioned a couple of times today, but I'd like to remind you later on this month, there will be a construction team that will go down to Purlington and they will work uh, drywalling a house there. See Bobby Cole, if that fits your skill set and you would have the opportunity to go, you're very much needed. Also, keep in mind that next month will be the stateside mission trip. And it will be in East Tennessee, and it is a tremendous trip to be a part of. Those classes that will inform you and also train you, as already mentioned, will begin in June the 17th. And if you say, I just don't know anything about mission work, this would be a great trip for you to go on. There's a place for you to serve, whatever your comfort level and ability is. I assure you, there's a place to serve. If you're very reserved about it, see Mike Kibbe and just tell him how reserved you are, and he'll find a place that you'll be comfortable. Uh, it truly is a blessing. If you have not gone on a mission trip like that, you really owe it to yourself. It will be a great benefit to the kingdom, but it'll really be a great benefit to you too. And so we hope that, that you'll take advantage of those things. Do keep in mind our summer faith series that will begin this Wednesday night. Uh, it should be just a tremendous time together this summer. I failed to mention to the second service this morning, so it's going to sound like a little bit of a rerun that I mentioned first service. My, this past week has been relatively busy for me personally, and so because of that, on Wednesday, I sent out an email to about 50 of you that I had your email addresses, and I said, hey, uh, I, I don't preach the same sermon twice at Mount Juliet, um, and so we're going to make an exception this week, and so give me uh, your best of. What, what is it that you would like to hear again? And there were a lot of neat responses. Uh, the... the uh, the number one response was, I want to hear the, the lesson on angels again. And then everybody that said that followed it by saying, but we know that's too close. You won't do it again. And you're right. And, and, then, and then the second, though, by far the second greatest response was, and it was interesting how many of you worded it almost the exact same way. It was almost like a group got together. And I know you didn't, but it was strange how similar the wording was. It would usually go something like this. I don't have an exact message in mind. But I like it when we hear lessons on family. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. When we think about family, we oftentimes would naturally think about our experiences and how we grew up. And we would also naturally think of the family that we are presently involved in. 
But do you realize that whenever we study the Word of God about the topic of family, although it might be difficult, in some senses we need to be able to wipe that slate clean and say, I'm not wanting to duplicate what man has done, whether it's me, my family, what my community has done. I want to know, God, what is it that you want me to be as a family? Pause there for a moment. If your idea is, I want a sermon on family because I want my wife to get it. I want my husband to get it. That's not going to work. The only one that you can work on in your family is you. You're the only one. And so if you say, I want my marriage to be better. I want my parent-child relationship to be better. You're the only one that you can work on. You can change you. You can't change other people. And so we we now come back to this lesson and say, how does that work whenever we think about we want things to be how? We want things to just be a little bit of a modified version of me that's kind of like a newer improved me? Or are you really ready tonight to say, I can clean the slate? Lord, if I need to, I can start all over as a husband because my primary goal is I want to be the man that you have created me to be in my family. Or I want to be the woman that you've created me to be. I want to be the child that you have created me to be in my family. But as we think especially about marriage, Malachi, the second chapter is a rich and deep study. And really, we're not going to develop that this evening. I want to use it as a launching point to take us over in just a moment to a a passage in Psalms 127 and verse one. But for just a moment, though, I'd like for you to see how God describes marriage in Malachi, the second chapter. They, in essence, they had done two things that God in verses 10 through the rest of this chapter, he really speaks very harshly to them. He accuses them of doing violent things and about three or four different times he says, you have dealt treacherously. And what they had done is they had taken women as wives that God said, do not take women as wives from those nations. Now, the verse that we're about to read, that's especially what he's talking about. Then you read down a few more verses and he says, now a second thing you've done as you've taken your older wives, that was your first wife, and you've discarded them, and you've taken younger wives. And of course, he says, you've dealt violently and treacherously there. And so he, he rebukes them and, and condemns them for doing that. But I'd like for you to back up, and I just want you to see, how does God describe marriage? Now, this might be a little bit different in various translations, but in the New King James... When we read verse 11, he says, Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned, now pause there for a moment. What has Judah profaned? The Lord's holy institution, which he loves. If you don't remember anything else tonight, I hope those words convict you. The Lord's holy institution, which he loves. I don't want you to feel self-conscious when this pours out of your lips over the next few weeks and I'm in your presence because I don't think less of you. But it really bothers me that as a Christian people, 
we have grown very, very comfortable with telling every young couple that is about to get married, oh, we hope you have the happiest marriage. I, I want to I take a, a young couple as a guinea pig sometime and the day they get engaged, I want them to start counting how many times people wish them a happy marriage. And now I want you to find that in the Bible. I can understand the secular world, that being their wish. How solid is happy? How committed is happy? Sit down tonight, if you want to rebuke yourself, sit down tonight with a clean sheet of paper and write, write an article to God about how happy a marriage ought to be. No wonder we get it wrong. We begin our young couples by all of our wishes. We are Christian people and all of our wishes are, we want you to be happy, we want you to be happy. But build, how can, you can't even build a life on happiness. It's an emotion. It comes and it goes. You feel it and the next moment you don't feel it. We're really going to build a marriage on an emotion? Why do we not talk about holy matrimony anymore? Why are we afraid to say, I hope your marriage is holy? That's what lasts. It's holy marriages. When a husband says, God, I want to be holy. And a wife says, God, I want to be holy. That is an institution. Now, you and I don't have to guess on this. God says, I love that. The holy institution which God loves. You know, the word holy is oftentimes translated from the very same word that is also translated sanctified. You see, holy and sanctified can be used interchangeably. You, you understand probably better what a sanctified life is. A sanctified life is here we are living in the midst of the world and we don't want to be in the world. We want to be in Christ. And so what we do is we become holy. We become sanctified. We become set apart from the world, but not just like we're an odd object, just, okay, I, I'm set apart and that's all that matters. No, we're set apart for a purpose. Now we are, remember the Old Testament phrase and even used a couple of times in the New Testament, we are God's special people. That's the idea of sanctified. We're no longer part of the world. Now we are owned by God for His purpose. You take a vessel and you put it in the temple. And that, that vessel was to be sanctified. A priest in the Old Testament couldn't take the vessel from the temple and say, Oh, I need this bowl at home tonight. I want to take this bowl back home and, and, and we're going to eat supper out of this bowl. Everybody knew you couldn't do that. Why? Because that bowl was holy. That bowl, in other words, it was set apart from day-to-day -day use and it was used in the temple for holy service. What does it mean when a person says, my life is set apart for God's use? Now here's one that I beg you, if you're married tonight, I beg you to chew on this one and meditate upon this one all week this week. I wish I could say this was original because I would feel like I was pretty smart, but this isn't original. What if instead of God creating marriage for you to be happy, what if instead He created marriage for you to be holy? 
What if that is the greatest purpose for marriage? It's for you to demonstrate a holy life and everything you are. What if a couple looks at their responsibility to each other and says, together we are a tool in God's kingdom. Our holy marriage, an institution that God loves, is more important than either one of us individually. So we go over to this couple in the world that they really are committed to each other and they really are unselfish towards each other. How is their marriage different from the faithful Christians that are really committed to each other and they're really unselfish? Here's my fear. My fear is there's no difference. Because we both are committed to the idea that we want to be happy and so we're going to be unselfish towards each other because we found out, well, you tell me, have you found out that whenever you're unselfish that your spouse seems to be happier? Seems kind of work that way, doesn't it? See, that's why the secular marriages where they're committed to each other to be unselfish, that's why they look a whole lot like people that call themselves Christians that are unselfish and committed to each other. But listen, there's a much higher standard than just saying, I'm going to look to my spouse as the standard in life and whatever he or she wants, I'm going to be unselfish and let them have it. You're not the standard. Your spouse is not the standard. If you want a holy marriage, God has to be the standard. And so to be unselfish doesn't mean you give your spouse what they want. It means that you say, God, I will be unselfish and I will give you everything you want. God, how do you want me to treat my spouse? As a man, how do you want me to lead my spouse? As a woman, how do you want me to submit to my spouse? You see, it's not about my spouse. It's about my God. Holy marriages when it's about God. Secular marriages when it's about each other. Tonight I could say, are you committed to your spouse? But instead I want to ask you, are you committed to the holy institution that God loves? We won't make mistakes when we follow the lead of the Almighty God. And so what would that look like? Well, to just develop the principle just a little more, drop back with me to Psalms 127 and verse 1. Psalms 127 and verse 1. If I had to pick just one verse in the Bible that dealt with general principles, and I know this doesn't get into the details, but general principles, this is probably my favorite verse in the Bible that deals with families and general principles. He lays out two things here, but it's all about God. Back to that, the holy institution that he loves. And he says, unless the Lord, this is Psalms 127 and 1, page 551. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So we have two things being done here. Number one, we have a building. And then number two, we have a protecting. But notice the building has to be done by the master builder. The one who loves the holy institution of marriage. We have to allow him to build that or we will build something that is common 
instead of holy. We will build something that's fleshly instead of spiritual. We will build something that's temporal instead of something that is permanent. Now go back to the introduction. The idea of happiness versus holiness. Do you remember at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount? Do you remember how the Sermon on the Mount ends? Our children remember. They sing it all the time. The wise man built his house. Remember, the wise man built his house on happiness. Remember that song? And how wonderful it was. And because everybody was happy. The mom and daddy were happy. And the kids were happy. And that house stood firm. No, the happiness was the sand. When our idea is, I want to pursue selfish interest. I want to pursue an emotion. It comes and it goes like the sand. And that house falls flat. But there is one that we can build our house on. And he is holy. Be holy for I am holy. We can build our life on Jesus Christ. And when the rains fall and when the floods rise and when the winds blow, that house that is built on holiness, the one who is holy, that house stands firm. And so they say, how do you do that? Here, the way the psalmist says, is he says, you let God build it. In other words, now we're back to submission. Whenever the husband says, I'm going to submit and I'm going to be the, the, the husband and the father that God wants me to be in everything, then God is building that house. And when the wife says that, God is building that house. And when the children say that, God is building that house. Now notice, we're real good though at thinking we can do it ourselves. You notice there, he says, if you try to build it without him, he says, you labor in vain. You know, several years ago, when GPS systems were just coming out, like the Garmin's and, and, and well, they weren't just coming out, but becoming much more popular. You know the reason that I wanted one? And some of you have this personality type. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. The reason why I wanted one was every time I get lost, it doesn't make me angry to be lost. It makes me so angry to waste time. I can't stand wasting time. And so I love having a GPS system because I know as a rule of thumb, I'm not going to waste time driving around. Do you like wasting time? What about wasting your life? Do you like wasting your life? Listen to this. Unless the Lord builds the house... You labor in vain. You waste your energy. You waste your time. You waste your life if the Lord is not building your home. So what does that mean? That means we can rush around in a rat race and we can give our all. Ah, we got to get our kids over here to this recital and we got to get our kids to this practice and we got to get them to this game. And they have to study for an hour and a half so they can make honor roll before they can eat supper. But then we have to rush them right in to this time that they do this and they do this. Oh, and that doesn't count the project that we've got to do until 12 o'clock at night. And then we've got to get them up early in the morning and we got to rush them to school. And then we got to go to work. And, and, but we're the parent of the year. My kid excels in all their activities. And I bring in a good enough income that they live in a nice house and nice middle-class America. I'm parent of the year. 
Let's let God speak on this. Is God building that schedule? Because if He's not, you labor in vain. If you win a rat race, what are you? Gold medal for the fastest rat. You labor in vain. I'm not saying that God's opposed to our kids playing sports. I'm not saying that God's opposed to our kids making honor roll. But brethren, the bottom line is the priority cannot be sports and the priority cannot be honor roll. The priority is what does my child's life look like when God is building their life? And mama and daddy are the ones responsible to let God build their life. I know you've probably read this a hundred or a thousand times. But will you drop back with me to Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter. And I just want to remind all of us parents of something so important. What does it look like if we allow God to build our schedules? Well, we know that by this Old Testament principle, I understand we live under the new covenant, but we still have the responsibility in Ephesians 6 chapter and verse 4 to raise up our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And so now we look to the Old Testament and say, are there examples in the Bible that we can learn from that might be very good ways to raise our children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord? And here's a wonderful way. We see in Deuteronomy the 6th chapter and verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. So the number one principle here is you have to be committed with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength to God or you can't be what your children need. You have to be 100% committed to God or you cannot be what your children need. Children see through the hypocrisy. They will live much more what you live instead of what you say. And so here, he's talking about what he wants the children to receive, but he begins with the parents. And he says, first, evaluate your heart. Do you love God with all of your being? And once he says that, then notice what he says to the children. Verse 6, or to the parents about the children. Notice verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Parents, is the highest priority in our schedule talking to our children about God? Is our priority to us as spouses of talking to each other about God? God's principles naturally flow from our lips throughout our family. When we're sitting in our house, and when we're traveling on our way, and when we're rising up in the morning, and when we're going to bed at night. The next time you take a trip, 
I beg you, set a period of time in your trip that all the media in your car goes off. And you just talk about godly things. Throw out one of the beautiful stories about Jesus in the Gospels. Let mama read it as you're going down the road. And let everybody else respond to what they've learned from Jesus out of that reading. Sing the books of the New Testament. Would you be embarrassed right now if you had to just stand up and recite the books of the Bible? Would you say, oh, wow, I haven't done that in a while. I'm afraid I'd mess that up. Listen, we live in a world where we commute all the time. There's no reason any of us here ought not know the books in the Bible because every faithful Christian has sung the books in the Bible in the car, right? And see, some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about. Some of us grew up where that's where we learned them. When you got in the car, you cut the radio off and you sung going down the road. And if you didn't know it, you sung it again and you sung it again. And you're going to get the books of the Bible. You're going to learn the apostles. Why? Because God teaches us that as Christians, we don't run a rat race. We use our time as we go to talk about Him. We use our time when we stop in our house to talk about Him. We use our time in the morning and when we go to bed and everything else that we can fit into that, like for example, we're about to go to baseball practice. Have you been praying about which, which team member you're going to invite to vacation Bible school this year? Hey, we're, we're about to go to the recital. Have you been praying for your teacher and looking for opportunities to be a good example to your teacher? Brethren, unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. In that day and time, if a city was not fortified with a wall, it was a setting duck that was to be conquered by the next enemy that came through. It wasn't an option. A city had to be fortified. Had you ever wondered why it was so important to Nehemiah that the wall be finished? It was because that was the way of protection for God's people. And so Nehemiah wanted to make sure that the wall was finished because then it would show strength to God's people. It would preserve God's people. And let me ask you, are you allowing God to protect your family? Are you allowing God to protect your marriage? I think about the woman that was on Oprah several years ago. And she had committed adultery however many times that it, it, was, it was stated as a fact. You know, like 45 times she had committed adultery. And, and, um, and so several women in the audience, when it came time for the audience to participate, began speaking very negative to her. Do you realize how many marriages you have wrecked? And do you realize how many people you have hurt? And it's those kind of comments from the audience. And finally, after a few of those, that woman said, it's not my place to protect their marriages. Listen, you may not like that answer, but in a way she's right. 
If you're married and you want your marriage protected and you think that secretary at work that wears a short skirt and flirts with you every day is going to protect your marriage, you are a fool. If you want your marriage protected, you allow you and God to protect your marriage. You protect your marriage long before the very act of fornication exists. I read a book one time, and to be honest with you, the book was on a scale of 1 to 10, probably a 3. But I'll never forget the title. And the title was, Stop Running the Red Lights. When you look at a relationship that ends in adultery at this point, they didn't get there overnight. Although, I can't tell you how many people have come and sat in my office and they have described the guilt they're feeling because they've committed uh, adultery. And then these words will usually follow. And I don't know how it happened. I say, well, let's just go back to the beginning. You know, the beginning is usually two years before. Well, you know, we started working together. And, and we just really like spending time. And I could talk with him or her about things that I couldn't talk with, with my spouse. Red light. You're sinning right there. Because that's foolishness. Huge red light. And so we just continued talking. And, and the more we talked, just the more we felt comfortable with each other. And I remember the first time they touched my arm. I remember how it felt. Red light. And then we started going to lunch, red light, and then red light, and then red light. And I don't know how it happened. You've been running red lights for two years. That's the way it happened. Let's go out here on Mount Juliet Road and let's take a left on Highway 70 and let's run it all the way into Nashville and let's set our cruise on 50 miles an hour and let's not stop for any red lights. And then when we kill somebody, let's say, I don't know how it happened. Listen, that's the way the world talks. That's the way fools talk. Holy people do not think nor talk like that. Holy people are committed to their God. And they guard their eyes. And they guard their heart. And they guard their hands. And they guard their steps because of their God. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. You hear what he's saying? I'll guard it myself. I know where to draw the line. I I, I won't go to... It's going to be okay. And God says, you go right ahead. And just know that everything you've got plotted out is worthless. It won't pay off. Years ago, I shared with you this story. I'll share it again and we'll close. I think about a young woman who quit teaching school to have her babies. And then after her babies were beginning school, she started back to school. She's an attractive lady. She went to teach in a school that she'd never taught in before. The first few days she was there, she met a coach. He was a single man. He was an attractive man. And she realized just after a couple of days 
that every time she spent any time with him, her heart fluttered just a little bit. After a couple more days, she realized she actually looked forward to running into him and anticipated it throughout the day. And then this faithful Christian lady came to the realization that's wrong. I'm committed to one man and he's my husband. She went to school the next day and before that she prayed quite a bit, pleaded with God for wisdom to know how to handle this. She went to school the next day. She asked her aide if they could have a meeting. She sat down with her aide and she says, we're going to redo our schedule. Any time that we go here, here, and here, you're taking the children. And any time we go here, here, and here, I'll take them. And she worked that man completely out of her life. Unless the Lord guards the city the watchman stays awake in vain tonight does it mean much does it mean a lot that there is a holy institution that God loves and if he loves it What does it mean to you? That institution is more important than you or your spouse individually. We either commit to it and we realize that when we do, it will bring a lot of fulfillment and some happiness will come out of it. But that fulfillment and happiness is just beauty. It's just extra. What we're committed to is God's holy institution. I can't be committed to God's holy institution the way I need to be if I'm still living in the midst of the world, living an unholy life. And so we'll sing a song of encouragement. Be prayerful. Pray for your family. Pray for our church family and their families. If we can help you If you're ready to become a Christian, if you're ready to be restored,